Uh, welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry, where we get to talk to people who are building a more humane world from the inside out. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and it's my pleasure today to introduce you all to Kelly Gerling. Up, I think you're in Seattle. Is that correct, Kelly? That is correct, Dick. Thank you very much. Yes, you're, uh, I understand, a PhD clinical psychologist. You coach uh, individuals as well as groups. Uh, you know, I got a, a doctorate in uh, clinical psychology after a master's in human relations and counseling, and before that, a degree in environmental science, and for that, a little two-year degree in liberal arts. So basically, you know, I've got a, a bit of a varied background in the last few years. I've been focusing more on large-scale change. And so I'm not practicing in this state as a psychologist, uh, although I did in Kansas when I was there with my uh, in my practice there, and I'm 10 years ago, roughly, I moved to the Northwest. And uh, so here I do some coaching, and I'm writing a lot, and doing some speaking, and basically doing my best to pursue my latest endeavors, which are focused on the conceptual basis for creating the required large-scale changes that we need nationally, internationally, at least at the conceptual level. You know, there's very little one person can do, but one person can create scenarios, can gather allies, can build an organization, can create an organizational capacity to do things. Um, and the areas I've been focusing on primarily are activating the, the popular will in the American political system so that the, what the people want, public opinion, becomes public policy. We don't have that. We have not had that under this constitution for 232 years since it was adopted in June of 1788. And uh, the second one is, is to harness financial power at the national level. And, and that's, uh, again, there have been new models, new insights, quite revolutionary in the field of macroeconomics, modern monetary theory. And I'm, I'm working on furthering that endeavor by clarifying and making more accurate the concepts, the terminology. Beyond that, the uh, actual framing of how an economy, a modern economy with a modern monetary system can work to harness the financial power of a sovereign nation. There, there are about, about 200 sovereign nations in the world. And aside from the members of the European Union who are part of the Eurozone with the single currency across 19 countries and apart from some other countries that peg their money units to dollars or something else, then most modern countries have financial power that the citizens of those countries don't understand and therefore cannot activate. So those are the, the, the things I'm working on now, two books, two, two approaches, uh, working with other people, 
and uh, but nothing's you know public at this point and won't be until something's published so i'm it's it's really fun and uh, in those earth day speeches that i that you've uh, had a chance to look at 2018 and 2019 i go into a little bit about the the need for large scale changes uh, those were uh, sort of like uh, sermons as uh, part of earth day at your church exactly which uh, takes me back to either the first or, or second Earth Day. And I, I used to use this in my uh, my health and wellness classes, uh, the Pogo cartoon, where uh, the two are walking around and uh, they're, it looks like they're walking around in a dump. There's all kinds of stuff they have to watch out, not step on. And this is where the famous phrase, uh, it's either we have seen or met, I think it's seen the enemy, and he is us, or it is us. Yes, it, it is a, uh, uh, a cliche in the best sense of the word, a memorable phrase where uh, the idea of referencing one's own self as a, at least a source of the continuation of persistent problems comes to mind. So yes, we have, we have met the enemy and it is us. That is truly important in, in both the realm of political will in order to solve this, what I call the global existential crisis with climate change and several other major factors all converging towards a trajectory towards global ecocide in the end of humanity's uh, brief tenure on the earth. And, and then, you know, the other one is the, the politics to, to make that mass mobilization happen so that we can have a soft landing, so that we can build a bridge over the chasm we're looking into. And the other one is the financial power so we can figure out how to afford it. So yes, uh, so I'm, I'm very interested in um, working with other people Every single individual is is roughly impotent. It's different if you're in a position of great power, like a, a member of Congress or a president or an executive or a prime minister, but I think, or a CEO of a corporation, but for almost everyone, um, as individuals, we have almost no power. However, we can imagine, we can visualize, we can each um, take on the mantle of, of presuming to be a leader, to find allies and other leaders with whom we can work together on uh, creating solutions. And so a lot of times the solutions are not existent within the traditional worldview that we have. Thus the idea of a new paradigm or a new worldview right. popularized by people like Thomas Kuhn in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which I have here beside me hmm. and uh, something I read, you know, in the seventies. Radical reconstruction of society itself from Dr. King's book, which was published after he died, is important to look at because it's a broad view, much like his Nobel speech, which is very, very different than his uh, common I have a dream speech, which, which is, is also, of course, um, just the archetype of a great speech and a part of the American vision of the future. In his Nobel speech, um, I think it was 1963, 
And then also uh, in this book, talking about the radical reconstruction of society itself, the phrase and his meaning of it presupposes the idea of a different world, a vision of a world that is better than the one we have. And certainly the current situation is not one he could have envisioned, where we're looking straight into an abyss of global destruction, global ecocide from what Noam Chomsky calls the risk on our trajectory of environmental catastrophe and uh, a, a terminal situation for humanity. Uh, others use other names. I picked the word global existential crisis in part because it's accurate. Existential means a threat to existence. It's global in scope. And in crisis is a common term, much like the climate, people using the climate crisis. And people like Greta Thunberg and uh, Bernie Sanders have both often used the phrase existential crisis, referring mostly to the climate aspect because that part has been emphasized in the media. I think that that's inaccurate in the sense that it's understatement. It's like call it the, saying the crisis is the climate crisis or climate change or even global warming is a bit like saying World War II was the Battle of Leningrad or, or the, the invasion of at Normandy. It's a part whole problem. The actual larger problem, as I talked about in the speeches, is a number of factors, all of which are existential crises. So climate has to do with atmosphere. It means it's enduring weather and changes in enduring weather or climate. There are lots of problems associated with that, uh, including the warming aspect of it, as we've seen with hurricanes and floods and intense weather and fires. So, but there are other aspects of it. You know, we've lost 40% of the biomass of the phytoplankton in the ocean since 1950, probably higher now than that study, which may have been five or 10 years ago. We've got ocean acidification has gone up 30% over the pre-industrial um, composition of the ocean in terms of the, the pH, the concentration of hydrogen atoms is, is getting um, more acidic and many, many others, habitat fragmentation, destruction, uh, et cetera. The risk of nuclear war is a big one that Noam has focused on. So with all of these problems in, in a, a GEC, a global existential crisis, it's very important to reflect on Dr. King's idea of radical change or transformation, the radical reconstruction of society itself, in terms of, okay, what would the goal be? You know? And I think one of those goals, the goal needs to be categorized properly. I, I think we need, both at the national level and globally, uh, I think we need universal, sustainable prosperity uh, for all people. And that's the best, having looked at a lot of different options for how to describe the goal. To me, that's my working, you know, maybe somebody will come up with a better one, but that's my working goal for what politics and economics should in international relations um, and should strive for. Uh, so focused on America is, is how do we do that? How do we conceive of that being desirable, possible, necessary? Can we conceive of that being illegal if we don't do it? And so I've been focusing on a legal argument for the requirement of many 
different human rights benefits as legal requirements for all Americans or everybody in America. And probably the same is true for most. So I've got different frameworks there, but then, if, so then if the goal is that, if we, if a working definition is universal sustainable prosperity, that means you can't do it in the short term at the expense of the long term. It just has to be sustainable. You can't do it for some and not others. It has to be universal. It's prosperity in the sense of everything that that means, economic, art, let's say culture, political equality is part of, can be conceived of as a prerequisite for prosperity, education, health, you know, there are lots of different factors that would go into what is a real prosperous place. And in fact, those have been quantified in the, in the United Nations Human Development Index, uh, happiness indices or indexes uh, that have been created and by which com- uh, countries are ranked. So there's, there's quantitative work being done on turning that into from a vague idea to actually quite a, a concrete, measurable um, phenomenon. Uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark are always in the top five uh, on the human United Nations Human Development Index. And despite our aggregate wealth as a country, we're not in the top 10. And so if we're going to have the radical reconstruction of society, then towards universal sustainable prosperity, we then need to think, okay, what stops us, what blocks our society's progress for what most Americans think would be a good idea. It's, it's not a divisive concept where some and not others get it, however you want to divide people. It's a unifying concept of, of universal prosperity, uh, starting with uh, citizens and uh, probably extending to, to guests or immigrants or you know visitors. When I was in New Zealand working with the healthcare system in the late 90s, I was running down a hill and I sprained my ankle and I was working at the hospital system. And so I go in for, to see a doctor and they look at it and it x-rayed it. It was, it was not broken and so just needed to you know, wrap it up a little bit, put a little ice on it, take it easy, mild sprain. But it was free. Mm-hmm. And I was an American, uh, not a New Zealander. I wasn't a citizen of New Zealand. But everything's free there in terms of if something happens and you're there, you're covered. And that's uh, something to look at. You know, it's, it's an ideal that some countries have achieved. France just increased their paternity leave. They doubled it um, uh, when a new baby is born. So there are exemplary standards across the world. And so if that's the goal, and then we look at cases of radical reconstruction, you mentioned the Civil War, and that was related to slavery. It was also related to whether or not states are sovereign. So I read the, uh, I believe there were 11 states that attempted to secede. And of those 11, four wrote very detailed um, proclamation of their secession. And then when you read those, you see the argument, it was a state's rights argument that we're each state is sovereign and that we have a right to form our own nation if we so choose. And Lincoln's argument was we're not sovereign. The constitution eliminated state sovereignty. Sovereignty can't be divided. We have national sovereignty. So no, you can't leave without the permission of the entire society. 
So that was that was the key argument. That was Jefferson Davis, you know, to to put it into one person versus Abraham Lincoln. Earlier, Abraham had actually felt more like Jefferson Davis in the 1840s. I looked that up, but he changed his mind when he became president. The particular category, the labor force, was the slave labor force. I also think, um, at least in part, large part, and I think states' rights is is a uh, higher moral goal for someone to adhere to than something as abhorrent as slavery, even for people in the South. Even Jefferson had slaves, but he hated slavery, or he wrote in many, many occasions, including a line that was rejected from the Declaration of Independence. It couldn't have been more hyperbolic about how horrible it was. But I also think that the higher, higher level category or the superset above slavery is an economy. The economy of the South, um, in part, was rooted in this practice, this horrible practice, much like our economy today is rooted in the horrible practice of burning fossil fuels. We all participate in it, and it's horrible, and it's destroying the world. It's far worse than slavery in, in the broader sense of the world and future generations. And yet, as we found, it's hard to get rid of. You know, and, and because people like their electricity and we like to travel and we like television and we like all the things that are powered by electricity and other things, powers that come from fossil fuels, um, heating, combustion engines, et cetera. So I think that in the case of the Civil War, you've, you've got the states' rights legal argument and then the economic benefit I think that they were pursuing was continuing to have a captive um, labor force of people who are largely considered by many in the South to be the German term during World War II was uh, untermenschen and subhuman and an inferior race, et cetera, mm-hmm. which of course factually is, is completely ridiculous and absurd based on a modern view. So if we look at, well, what happened in the civil war and, um, you know, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, I believed, um, were crucial at the end of the, during at the end of the Civil War to end slavery. And then another hundred years passed before, until the 1960s, before anything like a semblance of legal rights for our African American citizens was achieved uh, legally. And then you know, and then today you've got the after effects of, of what literally is historic racism and legal racism. And at that time, institutional racism up to the 60s is still, uh, where people are still suffering. You know, the average wealth of a black family is 17,000. The average wealth or the median, median wealth of a white family is, is 170,000. So there's a 10 to one disparity and it's a huge disadvantage for our African-American families and, and individuals. And that shows up everywhere. And people are very angry about it, uh, as we've seen today, as, as I think they should be. And then how is that fixed? You know, and that's a, that's a whole other subject. So I think that, that the Civil War was um, led to the transformation of our society away from slavery but it took another hundred years to even make it legal. And we still have yet 
to create more of a of a leveling of what I would call achieved not not equity but achieved human rights benefits to a minimum level necessary for self-governance of our country, the vision of the preamble. We the people ordain and establish this constitution. And we the, we the people serve on juries. And uh, there are other forgotten collective rights that are part of the necessary sort of revolution in American politics that uh, were at one time widely understood, deliberately hidden, such as the right of the democratic majority of the people using majority rule popular sovereignty to replace any constitution anytime we want on our own authority collectively because we say so that is i call that the self-governance prime directive it's literally written in the declaration of independence alter or abolish clause it's literally written in its predecessor the virginia declaration of rights it's literally written in the preamble, we the people ordain and establish. Obviously, we the people can reordain and reestablish. And it's, there's a legal precedent for it in Article 7. Whenever nine states agree by people assembled through majority voting to abolish the existing first constitution of 1777 and replace it with this new one written in 1787, well, then that's what's required. And they picked nine states out of 13 because any combination of nine states yielded a majority of the, let's, let's call it the public who could vote. So there's a, there's a, at that time they had a definition that is different than our definition today. You know, um, slaves couldn't vote, women couldn't vote. Today, children can't vote. You know, a 17 year old can't vote. So uh, that's something that changes through time. So in any event, I think that, that, that looking at the Civil War as a kind of transformation, it was, but it's, it's very slow, much like the French Revolution didn't really take, take shape until decades after 1789 because of the dictatorship of, of Napoleon I and then the other Napoleon later on. So they now have the Fifth Republic, the French Constitution of 1958, if I remember right. And there are politicians calling for a sixth constitution and a sixth republic. And so radical reconstruction of society, quite literally, at the political level, comes from new constitutions or major modifications to them, such as New Zealand shifting from a two-party to a multi-party system in 1993. The average life of a constitution in the world is less than 20 years. The average life of a constitution in Europe is, or duration, is uh, 32 years. Mm. So there's scholars who've studied these things. Mm -hmm. and, and yet the United Kingdom constitution consisting of several different documents, but it's, it's parliament and a house of lords and a monarch. You know, it's evolved over the years, but basically at this point, the House of Commons is, is the sovereign. But that's shifting because everybody agreed in parliament that the Brexit vote by the people in a referendum was binding. They agreed to that. Uh, they didn't have to, but they did. And so that's, there's a sort of gradual shift there. So I think, you know, to look at the radical reconstruction of society, I think the Civil War, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the unification of Germany, as you suggested, those are all examples that 
for better or for worse, are the radical reconstruction of society. I, I think looking at examples of radical, the radical reconstruction of society and the paradigm or worldview changes or revolutions within society is really, really important for us understanding how to create changes. And I, I wanted to offer a formula for that and see if it makes any sense. A formula for dealing with the many, many converging, merging crises that are occurring in the world. The uh, current COVID-19 pandemic is part of the global existential crisis. It comes under the categories of invasive species. In this case, it's a, it's a species of virus or a type of virus that is in our modern world because of technology, travel, the desire for wild food in certain parts of the country, the lack of regulation of wild meat, et cetera, that it has spread and there are going to be more. There's a great lecture by Anthony Fauci and along with that, another keynote at the same conference with science writer David Quammen, and they both describe the, the history of pandemics and how, and this was 2016, I think, how they're got more going to be coming. COVID-19 is not the last. They're coming quicker than they were before. And the world needs to figure this out. So the formula that I've come up with as, as a way to get beyond the Dennis Meadows view that it's too late to create a way of responding to the limits to growth. He's the author of that famous 1972 book, The Limits to Growth. And as you know, I interviewed him and put the written email interview inside a document that I wrote summarizing the factors in a global existential crisis. And I think the way to get around, around the, the idea that there's, there's nothing in the world that could, at least in sight, excuse me, that could <laughs> activate what we need quick enough is I, th I think the key to overcoming that lack of seeing anything that's obvious or even credible is to think in terms of uh, exponential growth. So we have a global, here's the formula, a global existential crisis requires a global exponential response in the form of a mass mobilization. Let me say that again. The global existential crisis requires a global exponential response. And if you look at, okay, where are examples of an exponential response using exponential growth that accelerates through time? One of those in America we've experienced uh, since 2005, in the last 15 years. And it is the legal acceptance of gay and lesbian rights to marry. And Barack Obama in 2008 campaigned against that. He did not agree to that. And the mindset totally reversed on the part of the majority in the space of uh, probably 10 years. I would say by 2015, state laws were being passed. So there can be an exponential response to the existential 
crisis and the, the mass mobilization that is required, similar to the World War II mass mobilization, means that the entire society turns a bit upside down. It's like turning a ranch design home into an A-frame while you're living in it. And uh, there's a book called A Call to Arms, which is about a very detailed look at the World War II mobilization that happened from 1940 to 1944, roughly. No more cars, no more, no more um, commercial trucks. We, we built tanks and jeeps and aircraft during that period. We transformed our economy so we could win world, help, help win World War II. Uh, I suspect there was something similar in the Soviet Union uh, who played such a huge role in also winning World War II with the other allies. So if we look at history, we can think it's possible to engage in that mass mobilization, such as now being described by a Green New Deal, requires political will. Well, if a, if a country and a world, let's just start with the country, America is faced with total destruction over a period of a small number of years, a couple, two or three decades. Then, according to the scientists, then if the political system fails to produce the political will to rise to this occasion, what do we do? Do we give up or do we change the political system? And I think the question answers itself. Change the political system. What does that mean? You know, the, the obvious one is to change the Constitution, to modify or replace it with a Constitution designed to put forth, to express and implement the popular political will of the American people, we the people, instead of to block it. Now, I say block it. This is part of the blind spot. Our Constitution is designed to block the political will of our people. Yes, it was designed to do that, and functionally it works to do that. Yet, this is unknown and an untold story. And the only way to understand it, the history of it, the intentions of it, is to go look at the source documents, the, the secret private discussions that 55 people had when they were writing our Constitution, which were not revealed to the American public who voted for the Constitution for 34 and 54 years, respectively, the two notes, Robert Yates and James Madison. So taking a deep dive into that history, we can see that our political system is designed, as Madison said, on June 26, 1787 at the Constitutional Convention. What we need to do, he said, because a lot of more people are gonna want to vote and a lot of these people want to rise from their level of indigence, indigence and to create a leveling of wealth and power. They want to participate in power. And in order to stop that from happening, he said, we need, quote, to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. Unquote. And for that, we have the Senate. Now, broadly, the Senate and the presidency, with its electoral college, at the time the Senate was voted by state legislatures, this also extends to the Supreme Court, which is only, and, and the entire judicial system at the national level is only controlled by the Senate and the presidency. So the, the Supreme Court is also kind of a, 
a three-way institutional blockade against the House from coming up with anything that benefits. So you see it today. The House Democrats created a $3.5 trillion stimulus package for dealing with a campaign with the pandemic. The Senate won't even discuss it. And it's working exactly the way it was designed to work. But people don't know that history. If we had a democratic country, as Noam Chomsky said, the notes that Madison and Robert Yates wrote when our constitution was being designed would be read by every child in every middle school. But it's not. Adults haven't read it. Almost no one has read these things. Instead, the, the propaganda is the founding fathers, the self-juvenilizing phrase written by Warren Harding in 1916 creates the deification of people. Therefore, you know, you don't need to examine what they did or what they said or criticize or improve on. Because if they're that super, that, that superlative to be founding fathers, then the entire population becomes a juvenilized, backward-looking child citizenry instead of an adult citizenry looking forward. So, so I think that dealing with um, how to create a political system which, is, which wants to and is designed to respond to this situation all people are in, the existential crisis environmentally, the risk of nuclear war, and the individual existential crises that so many people face with poverty, with lost jobs, with lost health insurance, on and on and on, it requires the radical reconstruction of the political system, the radical reconstruction of how we conceive of what dollars are, where they come from, what they're for, how we can use them responsibly in order to create the universal sustainable prosperity or whatever whatever might be a better term for where we need to go. Uh, so that's what I've been thinking about, taking Dr. King's radical reconstruction of society itself and subdividing it into, well, what parts of society? In America, we have the constitution designed to block the popular will. We have uh, mass confusion on the part of economics where people think deficits are bad because the word deficit is bad. But there are other ways to think about it that are more accurate, that are uh, in indicative of a deeper, more accurate understanding of what dollars are and where they come from in a modern monetary system. And then, you know, it, it goes from there. Those are the two areas I'm working on, but there are other, other areas as well. And then finally, if we look at the world as a whole, the United Nations Charter uh, is completely inadequate for enforcing any of the resolutions passed by its own Security Council or the General Assembly. There's no enforcement provision. Well, everybody knows if you have laws without enforcement, then they're worthless. So you have five nuclear, original nuclear powers after World War II and the UN was formed, France, the UK, the United States, China, and the Soviet Union. They can veto anything that was built into the charter. And so the UN needs to change. Well, I'm not qualified to figure that out, but I know someone who is. Ben Ferenc, former Nuremberg prosecutor, uh, roughly 100 years old, uh, old mentor, a mentor of mine going back to the 80s. He wrote a very detailed 12-point description of 
12 UN Security Council revolutions to radically reconstruct the United Nations itself. And uh, he handed that book called Global Survival to the current uh, Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres. He, he gave me permission to publish it online, the, uh, the, the back part of the book, which summarizes his 12 resolutions into one consolidated resolution. And one of those resolutions, which he wrote in that book, became the International Criminal Court, which he co-founded. It's signed by 140 countries. So we got work to do, we got 11 more to do, and maybe his model, his proposals can be improved. But these are the things that can give people something to do. Let's create a political system that expresses and implements the will of the American people to create the laws and the society we desire. Let's create a monetary system in parallel with that political system that can uh, at least give every American the baseline prosperity necessary for self-governance. The self-governance that's actually in the current constitution. We the people are named established. You know, you, that requires a certain level of education, spare time, um, knowledge, the ability to to have conversations about politics and power, etc. So, uh, like to know where where if you have any particulars you like to um, go to with regard to these ideas. So with the idea of uh, radical reconstruction by way of a, a new constitution, uh, there are other groups in our country that have been calling for a new constitution, but for very different purposes. So uh, how would we get to the place where there's a unified or will, can you imagine a unified purpose for uh, a new uh, constitutional convention? Well, uh, all of the um, calls for a constitutional convention by uh, the groups of people in the category I would refer to as authoritarian conservatives, Mark Levin, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, he wrote a whole book about it. You can read his book. You know, he wants to re return um, the Senate uh, to be elected by the state legislatures. So he wants to, he, he and the others like him, they want a balanced budget amendment they, or provision. They want uh, to, to use the process reserved in our constitution for public officials called the Article 5 process, where it takes two-thirds of the House and Senate or two-thirds of the states to propose any change, and then three-quarters of the states by legislatures or state conventions to uh, ratify, which means that, that the smallest 13 states, you need 38 states, so um, if the smallest 13 states can block any uh, ratification of a, changing a single period <laughs> or comma in the Constitution under Article 5. Uh, Akhil Amar, Sandy Levinson, other constitutional scholars have said very clearly that process was delegated to public officials and it's very difficult. However, the process that abolished our first constitution, 
1777, on June 21st, 1788, a date no one knows, uh, was not the, the ability to do that by a majority vote of the American people was not relinquished, was not abandoned or given up. Um, George Mason, who wrote the Virginia Decla Declaration of Rights, Thomas Jefferson, um, the author of the preamble, James Wilson, all of them believed and stated very, very clearly that that right of the American people to self-govern by assembling ourselves into an assembly under the First Amendment right of assembly to deliberate and create a new constitution and vote on it by majority voting is uh, something that cannot be given up because otherwise you make government the sovereign or you make a king or queen or a president the sovereign. And they said, there's no choice. The people collectively are the sovereign power of our sovereign nation. Now, this is an idea that has been lost through massive propaganda of omission, of the deification of the founders. I mean, deification literally under the Capitol Dome, there's a 6,000 square foot painting called the Apotheosis of Washington. <laughs> it means the deification and the rising up of George Washington into heaven. And he's pictured surrounded by angels, um, these beautiful angels in heaven. It's like the rising of Jesus in the Christian story, the ascension. And uh, they call it apotheosis. And, and there's a big Wikipedia article about that painting. So in order to recover this lost understanding of the democratic side of the American constitutional tradition, we have to understand majority rule popular sovereignty as the self-governance prime directive of a democratic nation. And that I call it the SPD, the self-governance prime directive. It, it means that the people are the sovereign. In the UK, parliament is the sovereign. Uh, and that mainly means the House, the House of Commons. Uh, in uh, New Zealand, in terms of how they changed their government in 1993, they did it by a national, a binding national referendum. So um, in that process, the sovereign is the, the Kiwis, the, the, the voting New Zealand people. They voted in, in 1993 to create a multi-party system, an entirely new way of electing their parliament, their, their legislature, their single legislature with both a party vote and uh in a district vote, they, it's a hybrid used in Germany and um, that they adapted. And, uh, and then in 2011, 15 years after the first one assembled in uh, 1996, they had to put the question before the people again, do you wanna keep this new system? We adopted, put into practice 15 years ago. Do we want to go back to the old one? Single seat districts, first past the post, winner-take-all voting, which leads to a two-party system, or do we want, you know, they had a couple other variations and the people chose to keep the one they have. Hmm. That collective right of a national people 
to chart their own political path, it goes to what a constitution is. So uh, most people think a constitution is at least a, uh, a document that establishes a relationship between the people and the government. Thomas Paine in 1792, when he was in France, wrote a book called The Rights of Man, modern translation would be the, the rights of humanity, rights of human beings. Um, in his book, uh, in his chapter of constitutions, he says that a constitution is not a document that describes the rights of uh, individuals under their government. It is not an agreement that people have with their government. Now, what else could it be? You know, that's the Socratic question for you and for uh, all the listeners is if, it, if, it, if a constitution, as Payne said, is not an agreement between the people and the government, then what is it? And it's so simple, it's hard to grasp. It's the elusive obvious. It's, you could think of the preamble, we the people, ordain and establish, it's right there. Do you have an answer yet, Dick? If it's I'm, not, if it's not an if it's not an agreement between the people and the government, what is it? I think it's the government's uh, declaration of how they're going to control things. <laughs> well, in practice, if we don't understand Paine's meaning, now Paine gave us the name United States of America in 1776. He's the first person to publish that name in capitals as a proper noun description of our country. Paine said that it isn't an agreement that the people have with a government. It is an agreement the people have with each other to create a government. And the preamble says that. We the people establish this constitution of the United States of America. It literally says that. They use the word ordain as well. And that's a rewrite of the Declaration of Independence preamble, the alter or abolish clause, that would that whenever government fails to achieve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness mentioned earlier in the preamble, the, the people have the right to alter or abolish that government and to institute new government more suited to their safety and happiness. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the meaning. That came from George Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights that Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, was very familiar with. So there's this thread of meaning about how people govern themselves. That's why I call it the self-governance prime directive. Prime directive is the most important rule to follow. Star Trek grabbed it from uh, a science fiction writer in the 1940s and used it to describe a negative, what you can't do, the prime directive. You, you can't interfere with low technology cultures on other planets. But in my sense of the word is, is it's, the, it's the most important principle. If you're going to have democratic self-governance by we the people, we have to recognize that majority rule, popular sovereignty is the deciding method for the collective right of the people to govern themselves. And that means a majority of the people who vote in a given referendum. America claims to be democratic, and we've never had a referendum. 
uh, under this constitution. So uh, they ha they ha used to have them at the for you know when under the first constitution when each state was sovereign. At the state level, they had referenda to decide things um, in some states, but we've never had one, even though it's common around the world. So so that's one of the key revolutionary insights. That's like the breakthrough of the germ theory, the great breakthrough of Darwinian principles and processes and mechanisms of evolution. It's like the Chomskyan revolution in cognitive science. It's like the Galilean revolution in uh, changing from an Earth-centered cosmos to a sun-centered solar system. So uh, these insights are crucial in economics. It's the idea that dollars are created internally on a number standard to mark up accounts in order that dollars come to life just like a scoreboard at a ball game. It's not, dollars don't come from outside the monetary system or the society. Uh, they're not a commodity like gold or silver. Dollars are numbers that are, that are created by the monetary system of a sovereign nation. And there's two steps. The dollars are authorized, and then the dollars are issued. And uh, the, again, that's an insight that is crucial for wielding financial power. It's an insight that is now spreading like crazy with uh, modern monetary theory and a new textbook that came out um, by uh, Randy Ray and William Mitchell and Martin Watts called Macroeconomics, and then the best-selling book by Stephanie Kelton called um, The Deficit Myth. So the ideas are there. You know, people understand germ theory, unfortunately, now better than ever before, uh, that, that infections are a contributing factor to diseases. And that revolution replaced the fluids theory, so-called humors, um, before Robert Koch and others contributed to our understanding of infections and, and agents of disease and, and vaccinations and, and immune system. All these things are new. So we need new systems of politics. We need new systems for understanding um, dollars and other money units, where they come from and how to responsibly um, create them towards the goals we have, you know, and we're, we're facing what Buckminster Fuller called utopia or oblivion in a way. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say utopia. I would say universal sustainable prosperity or, or oblivion or annihilation or uh, global ecocide. So uh, what are your, um, we're past our hour from when we started. Um, so do you have any, any, any way you want to um, conclude, Dick? Uh, Yes, I would like, uh, if you have a way of pointing to a link or something that uh, would let the audience go to this discussion besides just re-listening to our talk, uh, do you have a, a website yourself or do you recommend a particular uh, group that is promoting this particular line of thinking? Yes, I, I do have some references. Um, I think I don't, I, I am writing about this and 
I don't like release what I'm writing until it's published. Sure. Uh, however, uh, in the areas of, uh, I can recommend, um, I'd start with two books. Uh, under the category of um, activating financial power with the revolution of understanding where dollars come from and how our society does not have a limit on dollars and how they can be created for the benefit of society, then uh, I would recommend Stephanie Kelton, K-E-L-T-O-N, her book called The Deficit Myth. It's written for the general public. It's, uh, she's uh, uh, um, a really wonderful, brilliant MMT, Modern Monetary Theory Macroeconomist, as part of the MMT community that was co-founded by William Mitchell, uh, Warren Mosler, and uh, Randall Ray, W-R-A-Y, and, and then others have continued to co-found and co-create this field. So anybody can search for MMT, but I would recommend starting with her book. You can get uh, the book, you know, on anywhere. The deficit myth, and and also there's a written there's a there's an audio version of it on Amazon's uh, Audible program, and uh, she reads it, uh, and it's it's very accessible, it's very helpful. So that's M MMT for harnessing financial power. Yeah, I, I the, was able I was able to listen to uh, a good NPR interview with her a couple yeah. months ago, and uh, so there's I'm sure other ways that people can get, at least get an introduction to it, and then hopefully be inspired to get the book. Yeah, great. She, she, uh, she also gave a, a speech uh, at uh, Stony Brook, a presidential speech at Stony Brook uh, on um, YouTube. So you can get her summary there for free. Just go to uh, Stephanie Kelton, president's speech, Stony Brook. And then, um, and then Randall Ray and Bill Mitchell both write, both have blogs, both have written many books. And if they want the details, they can go to the textbook called by, by Mitchell, Ray, and Watts called Macroeconomics. The uh, other one on, a, on the, this, this revolutionary concept of the collective self-governance of the, the American people, the, the self-governance prime directive is what I call it, is uh, there's a book by Akhil Reed Amar, A-K-H-I-L, Reed, R-E-E-D, and then Amar, A-M-A-R, Yale constitutional scholar, and his book is called For the People. Now, if you go to biblio.com, usually you can get it for five bucks. And it is, it's a 1996 book, I believe is the date, maybe 94. It's called For the People. And this, this generic title contains with it, within it, the most revolutionary argument book length argument, I think it's 274 pages, uh, about the right of which I'm speaking, that we the people can change our constitution without the permission of our government, because this is an agreement we have with each other. And uh, it's hard because there's no mechanism for it. So the only way it would happen is a widespread understanding, but it's all in that book. 
And I'm writing about it to do my best to popularize it and to make it more accessible, shorter, uh, easier to understand. But I think that book captures a lot. And uh, uh, so those are the those are the two recommendations I have currently, Dick. Great. And uh, I think if people looked up your name, um, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, Gerling, G-E-R-L-I-N-G. I think a search for, for my name in Earth Day 2018, 2019, they're going to go to the Medium articles, they're going to go to a YouTube of the speech. I think the best places are the two Medium articles that have the video embedded and have the entire transcript uh, verbatim of my talk. And then each, and the, and the transcript has links out to the sources of scientists' warning, Dr. King's statements, uh, et, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there are, are lots of links there, just searching for my name and Earth Day and talk, and, and they're, they're both on medium.com. And at some point when my two writing projects are finished and we've got an organization that people can join on the political side and we've got a, a revision of the uh, modern monetary theory kinds of, and a summary of, of the, the concepts to make it a little bit more clear and frame, framed better, then uh, at some point we can have a follow-up if you'd like, you oh, know, I down would. the road. I definitely would. Because uh, I, I want to create something that people can join that uh, is very simple and very practical. You know, when New Zealand wanted to change to a multi-party system from a two-party system, similar to like when I, I personally legalized marijuana, I contributed to that in my state. I signed a petition and I filled in a dot and cast a vote. It mm. was that simple. And in my capacity collectively as a resident of Washington state, I and my fellow Washingtonians legalized pot for <laughs> recreational use. And all it took is a signature and a dot. And, and it needs to be that easy to improve our political system. And the states have done this 150 times, created new constitutions. It's not like we haven't done it before. We just need to do it at the national level. Great, wonderful. This has been an expansive hour for me. I have so many things I need to take another look at. Remember folks, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care and talk to you soon.